millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Right now, and for the last decade that I've been in the business, people only see me as one thing, which is like either the jock or the very, very superficial view on who I am. And when people find out that maybe I'm not stupid, it's almost like they don't know what to do with it. Hello, this is Christoph Triumph. I'm back with another interview. But before I go into that, I would like to inform you that Vorvet is sponsored by Uber, the invention that makes old traditional taxi obsolete and old and traditional. I know that many of you already are in the know of Uber, but if you are still to try it, and if you are in Stockholm or Gothenburg here in Sweden, feel free to try this fabulous service and support Varvet at the same time. This is how you do it. You download the app from your app store, you set up an account, and you type in Varvet as a code, and then you will get 150 kronor to Uber for. That's 150 Swedish crowns. So do try this and feel free to spread this Uber code, Varvet. Thank you, Uber. Alan Richson started out as a model uh, for Abercrombie & Fitch, but he's also done at least one record, but it's in acting that he's found his quote-unquote real career. The movie The Wedding Ringer, in which he plays a part, just premiered here in Sweden. He's also starring in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Hunger Games 2. But he's probably most famous for his character Thad Castle in the TV series Blue Mountain States in which he's one of the lead actors. Blue Mountain State is also getting a spin-off movie, which hopefully is coming out later this year. We'll talk about that in a little while. And Alan is one of the writers, producers, he's financing it, and so forth. About this interview, we started recording, and after 35 minutes or so, I realized that the tape wasn't rolling. So, uh, kindly enough, Alan was patient and uh, let me start over, and I'm very thankful for, for that. And uh, this is what that tape sounded like. Let's roll it, shall we? Is it it's recording now? Yeah. Hello? I promise. Okay. <laughs> okay, so Alan, where are we? We're in sunny, beautiful Los Angeles, California. Yeah, in, in West Hollywood, I guess. Yes, in sunny, beautiful West Hollywood, which is a much sunnier part of Los Angeles most of the time. Because you live uh, partly in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. I live, I live in Los Angeles a lot of the time. I have a place in Florida near where I grew up that I try and spend as much time as I can. But LA is a, an exciting place to be 
a lot of the time, but it's not, it's not really, you know, it's not, it's not really for me. It's more where, you know, I'm here because of necessity. You know, this is where to get the work these days. This is where the meetings happen. This is where the events happen, where you build relationships, but, but nothing shoots here. You know, everything shoots somewhere else because California's got no tax, you know, terrible tax incentives compared to other states. So, so nothing shoots here. So you come here for the work, you go shoot somewhere else. And then I, I try and live as much as I can in Florida. So, so uh, home for you is Florida. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a resident of Florida. Um, I spend as much time as I can there. I think it's just a much better place to be. It's, uh, you know, more of a small town and, Things are a little slower, you know, have a really great place where there's, there's actually, you can actually afford room to run around and right near the beach. It's, uh, it's a great, it's a great place to live. It's a a much easier life than out here. LA life in LA, doesn't matter who you are. Life in LA is tough. It's cramped. There are way too many people. Not that any of them don't have a right to be here. They do, but it's just, um, this place is just not meant to handle this many people. So it's, you know, it's expensive. It's challenging to get around. It's people are mean. I, you know, the, the thing that I, I think I wish there was a way to change it. I don't know what the fix would be, but I've learned that the feeling of anonymity is the thing that lends itself the most to the cruelty around us, I think. And this place is so jam packed with people that it's really hard not to feel like you are alone in a sea of people. So, you know, if you're driving around, somebody's going to be driving like an a-hole because they want to get to where they're going faster and they don't care about you because they don't know you and they don't think they're ever going to know you. It's not a small town where like, if I cut you off, chances are I'm going to see you at the restaurant down the street in a few minutes and we're going to see each other face to face. I'm going to treat you differently if I think that's going to happen. That doesn't exist here. The the feeling of anonymity is, I think, the it's the tool of the devil, <laughs> so as they say. But yeah, that's that's the thing I think that I don't like about this place is that it's it's really hard to overcome that. And you haven't made that many friends then in LA traffic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm the guy that's cutting people off. No, um, yeah, it's it's tough. It's just a, it's just it's just this place can wear you down. You yeah. know, it's hard on you, and and everybody's fighting for the same thing. They they all everybody wants the same job, and it's a very competitive place. That there, a lot of good comes from that. It refines people. People are constantly tested and makes you better for sure. But it just can be a, a place that's not not a lot of fun to live. So I so I spend as much time as I can in Florida near the beach. It's like a sanctuary for me there. You know, I recover and stay charged and stay grounded. And, you know, it's a, it's a place that reminds me that human beings are, are good. <laughs> you know, like, this place can be tough, though. I haven't been to Florida yet. There's a, quite a lot of Swedes. Yeah, down there. in Miami, especially. Yeah, down perhaps. in Miami, especially. It's, uh, I've lived on both sides. Florida's huge. If you stretched it out, it would, it would, it would extend most of the East Coast. So okay. people don't realize how big it is, but it would take you 12, 13 hours to drive from one point to the other. And in in my experience there growing up there, it's like two different states, like from Orlando South down to Miami, it's like a completely different place. And from like Orlando North up in the panhandle where I'm from, it's like the real South. It's like the old, you know, we're all just here having a good time and cooking grits and, you know. It's the South, you know, so, but it's funny because the more South you go, the less it gets like that. So it's a great place. It's home for me. I know that you're a family man, but, but what do you do in your spare time when you're there? 
I think you said it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a family man. It's something a lot of people don't understand about me or don't want to understand about me. I think the body of my fan base mostly consists of fans of Thad Castle from Blue Mountain State, this quintessential frat guy. How old is he? Well, he's, he's just graduated. He's just left his senior year. So he's first year in the NFL. So he'd be, he'd be 22 ish, 21, 22. Yeah. So, so people know me as that. And, and there's, uh, there's this thing that exists in people's mind where they see enough of, of one character and they believe that, that I'm really sad or that, you know, that, that there's, there's no line between who, who I am or like my beliefs versus dad's. And, you know, you know, people find out I'm a family guy or just not as wild and crazy as that is. And they're generally very disappointed when they, when they find out. So it's not something I talk about a ton, but do you think they're going to turn this interview off now when, yeah. <laughs> when you said that? Yeah. The, I, I just, in fact, it was funny this, this, this morning, I hardly ever like, tweet pictures of my family or anything, but I just, I went to a, a premiere last night and there was a great picture of me and my wife who I went with. And I just basically was like, had a great time at the wedding ringer premiere. And you know, it was a photo of us. People in the comments are like, he's got a wife. <laughs> What is this? No, he's, he can't have a wife. Yeah. I continually disappoint people. And I'm sure some people are going to be turning it off when they find out I'm married and I don't do mountains of cocaine for fun. But you do do cocaine, but not... <laughs> Just not for fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just on TV. Yeah. Okay. By the way, how do you do coke on, on TV? Is it something else that you? It's li- it's it's usually vitamin B or lactose. Okay. Lactose powder. So like dairy based powder or vitamin B. When we shot the movie, there was tons of it, and it was a vitamin B. All right. Yeah. Which okay. is a very difficult thing to snort. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is. Hurts. Okay. And uh tastes disgusting. It's gag worthy. Yeah, but um but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh it's like not a dairy thing. So, it actually, you know, you feel uh feel like you've been taking your vitamins all day when you're, <laughs> you're snorting vitamin B off strippers' breasts. Vitamin B is that iron? Or something like that? No, I don't know. It's um I don't know. There's a vitamin, I guess. Yeah. Let's leave that to I'm far too I'll leave it to the scientists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you were at the opening for the wedding ringer yesterday. Yes. And and you sort of have a big I obviously I haven't seen it yet. I will. Please do, you should. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I will. I wasn't invited to the party. Oh man. I would have, I, I would have, we should have walked the carpet together. We could have done an interview on the carpet. That would have been great. That would have been better, perhaps, and and people wouldn't have been so disappointed with your wife and so. Yeah, forth. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's my wife. And also that you sort of have a gay re- reputation as well as well as a gay following, obviously. Yeah, I think uh, I think I, I I do a pretty good job of keeping people guessing. I think with my my career choices, I don't know when it started. I guess in my modeling days, which you know, for me was just. A means to an end, you know. Somebody pays you to take a picture. You, you know, you get a call that somebody wants to pay you to take pictures, and you show up and you put on the clothes that they have. And most of the time, for me, for for whatever reason, if it they was, have any clothes, it was yeah, no clothes or it was scantily clad, you know, with underwear, whatever. I that's what I did. I took pictures in clothes, and that's uh, anyway. So built a, a pretty large gay following there, 
And I think they followed me. They're really loyal, and uh, it's a great demo to have. I think they've really enjoyed my work on BMS. And Thad was always sort of ambiguously gay, and uh, we never really said one way or the other, you know, defined his sexuality. People enjoyed that. You know, whether you're like a super macho frat guy, I mean, I think they can find it funny that Thad is questionable. And I think the gay fans like really enjoyed that you had this meathead who for once is like, what is he, <laughs> you know? But yeah, there's definitely a gay following and um, they've always been really, really good to me. Is the movie going to sort of spark that or does it come out? No, it's it- just not something we ever really talked about. It's just who this guy is. You know, he's, he's like a child, you know, where You do and say things that if anybody else did or said it, it would be an answer to that. And for some reason, that is just so childlike that it just makes you wonder because you're like, is he gay? Is he stupid? Is he is he really, really smart and he's fooling everybody? I mean, that's the thing that I think was so interesting about him was that you never really know. He's either wickedly smart and devious or super lucky and dumb or very, very heterosexual or very, very secretly gay. <laughs> I mean, but we never really answer it. So, um, I, but I think that's what, what makes it so fun to watch because you, you never really know what you're going to get with him, you know? In my interviews, I like to go way back and I know that you were born in 1984. Yeah. By the way, did you celebrate your 30th birthday and in- I was in Florida because it was over Thanksgiving. I had one day in Florida. I was shooting BMS. We had Thanksgiving off. We had, you know, we, we, we have to, um, to give the holidays off. So I had a day off. I flew down to my place in Florida met my family there we celebrated thanksgiving had a slice of cake and i flew right back up so yeah we celebrated it was a good one this year so that's it that was it all right you were born in 84 you were uh, born in north dakota right grand forks north dakota yeah my dad was in the military yeah. so uh, we 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 moved around a lot I, i didn't stay there long i don't remember it but i was born there while he was stationed there and i i believe we moved right before i turned two to guam And, you know, we were, we were stationed there for, I, I don't know, maybe a year. Uh, it wasn't long and moved to Illinois and we moved twice within Illinois at Chinook Air Force Base. But, um, but I stayed there till I was in fifth grade. So I remember much of my like early childhood, you know, boyhood was in Illinois, I had many adventures there and, and then uh, moved down to Florida and I, from fifth grade on was in Florida and now have a home there. So, so that's really kind of where my roots are. Where's your first memory from? My first memories are from Illinois. I, I remember learning to ride a, a bike with training wheels there. And I remember the ice cream man that would come by on his little his little bicycle with his wagon of ice cream. And I remember going to watch my dad's softball games. I mean, I, I remember a lot about that time and place, you know, and then You know, growing up, I remember moving once there, and then I remember when they closed the Air Force Base, and we we had to pick. We had a big family meeting because we had our choice between moving to California or moving to Florida. We were going to be stationed, you know, at, at either one. So, so we had a family meeting, and I remember my parents selling us on Florida. They were like, "Well, we can move to California, where there are earthquakes, scary earthquakes." Oh, and it's a desert and it's hot and there are scorpions. 
or we can move to sunny Florida and go to the beach. And we're like, Florida. <laughs> so uh, they kind of baited us there. But um, we ended up moving to Florida as a family. And um, yeah, I remember all that. You obviously don't know anything else because that's how you're, you were raised. Uh -huh. But but I mean, moving so often, uh, doesn't that sort of affect you in any way? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we we moved around. I you know, I would say we we were lucky. We didn't even move as much as a lot of the friends that I knew came and went, you know, some, you know, 14 Air Force bases or whatever in you know, in seven years. I mean, there are some people who shifted a lot. We were pretty lucky. We we didn't move around a ton, but it was enough to be interesting. It was enough to it taught me to hold loosely to things right or wrong. I hold very loosely to relationships. You know, I, I can pour into somebody in the short amount of time that I know them and, and get to know them really well and feel really close. And then if one of us is set to move or one of us has to go, we just, we go and, and life goes on, you know, and, and that's sort of how I am. And it's, that's perfect when you're in show business in a way. Well, and maybe that's why I'm in show business because I, I learned to adapt to different environments very quickly. I always enjoyed being the new kid and getting to know new people and new things. And I enjoyed it. I looked forward to to the moves, which I don't know if that's strange or not for, you know, an eight year old or 10 year old or 15 year old. I don't know. But but yeah, I always enjoyed it. And I think it teaches you to adapt to different people, to respect a lot of different kinds of people and places. And, you know, I wouldn't say cultures in the sense that like if we were going to Germany or China, obviously there's all that you, you can have culture shock as a, as a kid, but you know, there are different cultures within, you know, moving from the Midwest to the South. I mean, it's, it's a different thing. You learn to adapt and it, it just, uh, maybe that's why I'm an actor. I don't know, <laughs> you know, but it definitely laid the foundation for the kind of life that I live now to be easy for me. Have you always been interested in like being on stage or being seen? I mean, to express? No, not not at all. I, I I mean, I came from a military family, and my father was very loving, you know. But he wasn't a show person, you know. I mean, he he he's not he's not like completely stoic, but he's just there's nothing artistic really about my family and where, you know, there's, I'm the first in my family and, and extended family to do anything in show business. It's definitely a departure from what we know. Were um, you supposed to be a military? No, you know, my, my, I think my dad's very wise man because I wanted to follow in his footsteps. I mean, as, as I think any son who respects his father would, naturally want to follow in their father's footsteps. I told him, I, I remember sitting him down when I was 18 and I said, I just want you to know I'm going in the military and I want to, I want to do special forces work and, uh, I want your blessing. And I thought he would be like, I'm really proud of you. That's going to be great. You're going to be great at that. And he said, there's no way in hell you're doing that. You'd be stupid to give up the future that you have. And he told me he went into the military because he had no other choice and, you know, hadn't made the greatest choices. And his father basically kicked him out and said, you can either go in the military or live in the streets. And he went in the military. And, and um, so he never wished for that, really. Yeah, it was not really, you know, I guess maybe it was his fate, but I don't know if it was his destiny. I, I don't know. It's a it's a question we'll never know in this life. Um, no, but, but, but were there unrealized dreams for him? Possibly. He was an athlete, you know, he's a baseball player and, um, and, and it was very talented and maybe could have gone that direction, but he didn't. So it is what it is. But I was shocked by his response and it sort of left me going like, all right, 
I really wanted to do that. And why? I don't really know. Well, just because I think there's something about the military tradition. When you grow up in that family, there's just a level of discipline that's there. I have a lot of respect for people in the military because they're, they're usually very, very respectful people. There's, like I said, there's a lot of discipline and structure and they're, they're generally very, very good, productive people. And, um, and I always admire that. And, um, you know, watch my dad do it our whole lives. And I I don't know, it's what you, it's what you know, you know, it's just familiar. So you, you know, it's, it's what you know. And you get to wear Um, shiny shoes and and you get shine shoes all the time. And, and I also, you know, I think there's, there's honor in serving your country. I think what, what we have here in the U S we're, we're definitely not always right. We've definitely made mistakes as a country and I'll I'll be the first to, to recognize that. I think that's no secret, but I think at the heart of who we are as a people, we help create freedom for people in a lot of ways. And, and you look at the society that we have here and it's that kind of freedom lends itself to greed and deception and lies and, you know, the problems that come with it. But I think it's worth that kind of cost of doing business. If you look at a place like North Korea or China, where there's like, there is no freedom. If you really know what's going on there, I think most people would vote for more freedom and working to prevent the greedy people of the world to take advantage of that kind of system. But I'm very proud to be an American and I'm very proud that we, we're a free open society in that sense. And, uh, I wanted to support that. I wanted to, I wanted to support the country and that felt like the only way that I could do it. And that's sort of what you're taught, I guess, in a way too. growing up in a military family where you see it firsthand, that that's the best way to serve your country. I've learned since then that there are other ways that you can serve your country and there are other ways that you can serve your fellow man. And the way that I try and do that is twofold. One, by entertaining them. And I think there's a great value and a great need for that. And uh, the other is by being a job creator. I want to be somebody who creates opportunities for other people. And I have done a pretty good job of that so far and just want to continue doing more of that. And again, we live in a society where the sky's the limit if your will is there to what you can create. And I love that. And I want to support that. And I want to make more of that possible for other people here and everywhere else. But anyway, to answer your question, as a child, you think the only way to serve your country is via the military. And that's not necessarily the case. So I've got a different perspective now, but that that was then. And I think my father was right in the direction he he helped push me. (laughs) What happened after that meeting? Well, I kind of kind of went into self-reflection mode and like, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or be. And I've never really known what I wanted to do. You're not supposed to know that when you're 18. Well, that's not what we're taught. I mean, you're taught, you're supposed to know, and you're supposed to educate yourself and that track. And, you know, I mean, it's terrible, you know, (laughs) it's terrible. I think we should, I think we should live in a society where I think there was something really right about, you know, more of a, a medieval system where there was like apprenticeships from an early age, you as a child or a teen or whatever, if you start to take an interest in some line of work and you actually shadow somebody who's a professional at it, you can learn firsthand one, how to be good at it. But two, if you're really interested in it and you may decide, you know, that you don't want to do that and that you've tried it and didn't like it. And what an unbelievable education that is. And we don't have that. We just educate the hell out of people until 
they're forced into one, one, one way because they've, they've already committed, you know? So it's just not a good system that I think we use. It's very industrialized education system and everybody's got their own, their own ideas about what education should look like these days. But as a very free spirit, as somebody who learns from experiences first, I quit college. I had it paid for academically. I was very good artistically. You know, I had scholarships for music and I just, I wasn't happy and it wasn't fulfilling. And I, I wanted to explore more of myself and more of the world. And I did. And at the risk of being left behind by somebody who has a better education or whatever. And I've personally found that the firsthand experience, sometimes not knowing the rules are, is, is a better way to get it done. You ask the simple questions that other people overlook because you're, you're taught not to ask those questions or buck the system, you know? So I kind of, I didn't know what or where to go. And I, um, I went down to Miami. I was, I was modeling because that was an opportunity that I had at, at the time. And it was a, a good way to allow myself the freedom to see, you know, explore what I wanted to do. I had a lot of free time and, but I knew that wasn't what I really wanted to do. There's a very fruitless industry. You stand there like a, a, like a monkey and you, you know, you don't talk, you're sharing no, you know, no ideas, you know, you're bringing nothing to the world. <laughs> nothing. Did you ever stand in front of the Abercrombie Fitch store? No, no, but I've been, I've been asked to, uh, quite a lot. I haven't, I think that's, that's a fun line of work, but not, not for me, no. Were you into sports growing up? Yeah, I was very athletic. Yeah. I think just sort of naturally athletic, uh, played baseball, basketball. I played all the sports, like all the boys did where we grew up. It was only in high school where I sort of had to start choosing what I wanted to spend my time doing. Cause you know, you can't be a high school football player or baseball player and invest yourself in being good in drama or chorus or whatever I wanted to do. So I knew I wasn't going to be a professional athlete and I just kind of wanted, but you know, wanted to pull the plug on that then. And how, how could you know you didn't have the driver? No, I think I just, one, my body wasn't, wasn't there yet. You know, it's tough. It's tough. I think if I knew I'd grow into like a six, three, 210 pound, pretty athletic body, I may have thought otherwise, but I was a really late bloomer. So I was very small for my size. So I was, I was competing in high school or earlier with like, young men, you know, like I was a senior in high school when I hit puberty. So I was way behind everybody. And my athleticism got me there because I was just athletic enough to keep up. But I'm playing with guys in bodies of men, you know, and they were playing at a different level. So I'm looking at that going, there's no way I'll ever, I can't compete with that. I'm not going to be, these guys are getting scholarships to colleges and, and I'm just not, I'm just a boy playing baseball, you know? So I just kind of knew it wasn't for me and I don't know. And where did you get the artistic sort of, where did that come from? I remember I was in the car. It was the summer between fifth and sixth grade. We had just moved to Florida and we had just moved into this house. Our family was like getting settled. We're driving back from church one day and, you know, songs playing on the radio. And I was like in the back, like any boy would. And I'm like singing my little heart out to this song innocently. And my parents both at the same time turn around and look at me as we're turning onto our street. And my mom was like, you can really sing. And I was like, you know, I was embarrassed, you know, I was like, Ooh. you know, then I didn't want to sing because I was self-conscious. She's like, no, no, don't stop. And I was like, no, I don't want to sing anymore. She's like, no, you have to, you have to train your voice. You're really good. And I think it surprised them because we're not an artistic family. Like nobody's ever really done that, you know? And so I signed up for chorus that next year. And it was one of those things where, 
this is sort of how my entire life has been. It's like, I mean, I don't think I'm that great at any one thing and that's fine. I think giving something your all is, if you're pretty good at it, is, is better than somebody who is technically the best and doesn't care as much. So I'm fine with that, that however, you know, whatever gifts I have, you know, I know I'm not the best at really anything, but, but I knew I was good because I could just see the reactions that people as in sixth grade, completely untrained. And my chorus teacher was giving us little auditions to hear us and see who was good and who wasn't. (laughs) And I could just see the look on her face when I would sing. And I just sort of realized like, well, I hear their voice and I don't like it that much. I don't think they're very good. I hear their voice and I'm like, they're pretty good, but I think I sound better than that. So maybe I'm really good. I don't know. And I just, I just sort of, I was like, I I think I'm pretty good at this. And so I pursued it and, and, uh, I did it, you know, my whole, you know, up through high school, I was in chorus and I was always in the best choruses and, you know, we competed and traveled and I just sort of knew by association that I was pretty good at it, but certainly have come across much, much more talented people than myself. And I've learned that I just have a love for music and for the arts and, for theater, you know, I just, I love it just because it's an amazing expression of the soul. And, um, it's fun to see, especially with music, how you can solicit an immediate emotional response from somebody. It's so rare that you can do that in this life. So I always was really attracted to that. It just was, it's just a passion that just existed. When was the first time you, you were on stage acting then? Well, I did, again, it was one of those things where I was just sort of pushed into it, you know, but a lot of friends and stuff were like, you're really funny, you should do drama. And so there was like a competitive acting thing called forensics at the high school that I was at. And we would go compete, like a football team would go compete. We'd go compete in acting. It's a strange thing, but there are rules. There's a set structure to how you how you perform a piece, but you play all the characters and you stand in one place and you just bring as much life to this like 10 minute scene or, or, or excerpt as you can. So it's not improv. It's not improv. No, okay. it's acting, but it's comp- it's just competitive acting. And again, just was really good at it. Naturally, just really good at it. Uh, didn't know the rules. I didn't know what you're supposed to do. But you know, the teacher would like just do this and don't do this and have fun. And I found that I was really good at. It. I won a state championship my first year doing it. And and then I was like, well, I've already won everything. So I'm, obviously, I already know I'm good at it. Why am I going to do it again? So I quit. <laughs> And I focused on chorus. And then I was the youngest, the youngest person in like six years to make this elite group Opus One at the high school. It was, uh, I was a sophomore in this group of mostly seniors and some juniors. And again, it was one of those things where it was like, I'm going to try out and see what happens. And I made it and I was like, wow, okay. So now I'm surrounded by really talented seniors in chorus. And I just really like that. And then I, I, I had done that. So then I was like, well, I did that. I was really good at that. I'm now I'm now I'm bored and I wanted to do something, you know, I just, I was always looking for something new. And if I found out I was good at something and I just, then I wanted to go move on to something else and see if I was good at something else. And that's kind of how it's always been. But I always came back to the music into the acting. Cause it was just always a thing that I could enjoy for a long time. You know? But then it sort of sounds like you don't really need a challenge or Well, I think I learned, I think I learned that lesson more recently that to truly compete in a professional sense at the level that is required these days, if I'm going to pursue acting, I can't dabble in it like that. And I thought I always could. And I was especially sort of deceived, I think, because 
when I first moved to LA, right out of the gate, I started booking roles in in the acting. And it just, again, it was, I had a print agent. I moved to LA for music because there were songwriters out here that wanted to work with me. So I was, I was writing with people and which year is this? This is like, golly, this is back in like this is 2002, 2003. Okay. So this is like before that. Idol. Yeah, it was, I think it was actually like right around the same time or right after. But yeah, so I was out there. I was thinking I was going to be a songwriter. And I, my print agent, you know, in the modeling world, which is completely different than the TV film world, was sending guys on his models on like parts that he thought he could get them. And I found out and I was like, well, dude, send me on. I want to like, if I can make extra money doing that too, let's do that. And so he did. And I started actually booking jobs. And so I was like, oh, this is easy. And what was that? Smallville. Okay. Yeah. All I right. was a body image of Beowulf for the Zemeckis film. I did this horror movie as all young actors should. And, uh, and then Smallville, a recurring guest star playing Aquaman. And, yeah. and it just, I was like, all right, so like everything else, I'm like, all right, I guess I'm just good at this. And I guess I'm just, all right, it's done. Like I'm already in, you know, but I could have gone a very different direction if things had continued to be so easy and it would have been a disservice to, to me and to the potential that I, that I really have. I eventually really had to work hard to like, I started realizing it's really competitive. Like once I was on Smallville I had opportunities to go out for real parts with, I'm not that that wasn't a real part, but real parts in like big movies and, you know, and then I'm competing with like, you know, Ryan Gosling for some part. And I'm some loser from Niceville that doesn't know the first thing about acting. I don't stand a chance. And I started to realize that I'm like, this is really competitive and I'm, I'm not that good. And I, I'll never forget the thing that changed me the most was an audition for Thor. I had just come off the show, Blue Mountain State now I'm, you know, I'm on the show for three years. I'm a professional actor. I'm, it's been validated. I've, I've, I've got a body of work behind me. I'm working on this TV show. The show is canceled and I, I'm, I'm saying to myself, I want to make a switch into film and really push for the film, film line. And I get this opportunity to, to audition for Thor. And I was also kind of jaded at the time because I'm like arrogant about the fact that I'm coming off the show and I'm like, oh, I'm hot stuff now because I'm on this show. Uh, they're going to want to work with me. Wasn't true. And also that the business was so superficial that they don't really care what your acting chops are because you can watch any tentpole movie and see crappy actors in there who are in there because they look a certain way or because they know somebody. And so I'm, I'm going into this thinking like, I'm going to walk in the room and either I look like the guy they want or I don't. And I'll book the part because of that or I won't. So I didn't really work hard on the material. And that changed my life forever because I walked in there. It wasn't a great read. It wasn't bad. It just was uninspiring. I knew it. The casting director knew it. And I sort of walked out like, well, if I look the part, they'll call me back and then I'll really work on it for the producers or whatever. And the casting director called. This never happens. But they called my agent and they said, we want you to know that we've been looking for a long time for this actor. And when he walked in, we looked at each other and said, oh my God, we finally found him. That's him. Please be good. And he started doing the lines and just realized he didn't have the craft. He hadn't done his work. And it was really disappointing. And if he had, he could be this guy and probably would have. And my agent told me that as they should have, because they were disappointed that I sort of blew it. And I went and found a coach and knowing I would never go back in for that, and I never did, I coached for three weeks straight 
every day I'd work on that piece just so I knew what it should have felt like, what the performance should and could have been. I wanted to mine everything in that and teach myself, teach myself what, what I should have done so that I would never make that mistake again. And I learned a lot in that three weeks of sort of penance, you know, and I realized how, how little I knew and how little I understood the craft and how to do the work. And from there I went and I, I got, I got in a class. I started studying theater and reading, performing theater and, and it changed my life. It changed my life. If you, if you graph my career it's like, okay, he's working a little bit, working a little bit, probably because I just happened to look the part. And then you can see where I, where that happened and where I got in, in and started training myself. The work, the caliber of work was entirely different and it's skyrocketed. So I don't think it's a coincidence, but when I dedicated myself to learning the craft in a way I never did before, instead of sort of, you know, floating through life the way that I always had, like, I guess I'm good I'll always kind of work. I probably could have always worked on like a show of a lesser caliber of you could do CW shows till the cows come home. It's not, you know, they're not looking for some um, classically trained actor on that show. You know, I mean, it's it's let's be honest. It's a lot about the look. Right. I probably could have gotten away with that for a long time, but that's not what I want. And that's I want I want to be the best and it, I want to be my best. And it taught me a lot about myself and that I wasn't being my best. So that changed that, that, that loss changed my life. You can't sort of practice three weeks for every audition, I guess. No, no, certainly not. And you shouldn't, but because I, I understand the craft of acting, I understand how I should be working on a part. Now I don't need three weeks. It requires more than just reading over at once. I mean, there is a kind of work that has to happen, but can you describe that process? I would say it's it's as simple as this is an oversimplification but what has to happen is I as the actor have to understand the author's greatest intent. So once I understand the reason the author is writing this and it's okay if it's just for pure entertainment. Then you have to find well why is it written for the comedy? Is it funny or is it or for the drama, is it emotional or what? I mean, they're different, you know, but there's an idea at stake. There's a theme there that the author cared enough about to invest his time and and talent into this script or book or whatever it is. And I need to know what that is. Once I know what that is, I can start to understand my role in that and how that character breathes life into that idea. And I think moving from that place of knowing that you're bringing an idea to life and supporting that in some way, shape or form starts to inform how you work and build a character from the inside out. So that's what I do. And that's where I start. And once all that work is done and you, you understand the idea and you move away from the author to the character, you build life and a past and a history and you mine that script or screenplay for all the information the author gives you. And then you build the rest if it's missing Then you pass that through your imagination and live that life in your head. All those experiences in your head go back and you picture all that time and all those memories and events and it becomes real. It starts to become real. So once you pass all that through your imagination, it's now part of your being. It's a part of the fiber of your being, just like my own real experiences are a part of me. Once that happens, you're you're on your way to you're ready to start playing with the character. Okay, but do you achieve that with every audition? 
Because that sounds like, sort of like a Nirvana thing. Maybe. I would say no. I would say no. But if I get through most of that, or if, if, if I, for at least, at least for audition purposes, if I get, if I get to the point where I've, I've had a, a couple of those experiences, at least for those moments, then I think I'm close enough for both myself and the producers, the studio, the casting director to understand that I know who this guy is and, and how to, how to do the work. But certainly, I mean, we don't live in a world that lends itself to (laughs) allowing actors ample time to prepare. And I think everybody knows that. I mean, there, there are days where I get three, four auditions in a day and sometimes just hours to prep, you Uh know? So, so it's not, we don't, we live in a very fast paced world where it's like, it's as much a business as anything else. And they find out they need this thing filled and they're going to fill it as fast as they can with the best person that they feel is, is right for the, for the business and for the creative ends. So no, you don't always have time. You have to do your best with what, what's given, but knowing what the craft should look like and knowing that, you know, if you have one hour to prepare, you know exactly how far you can get and, and you do your best with that. If you have six weeks to prepare, you're going to be a lot closer to the real thing, but you do your best. You can just do your best. So most of the time you can kind of get a good idea, at least through an audition. You sort of said that you never wanted to model. It sort of just happened. Well, but- I would say I, it's not that I didn't want to, because obviously I did it. So there had to be some desire there, but it wasn't something I pursued. No. You know, it was... It was like, I didn't grow up saying like, I want to model or like I wasn't in high school, like going like, yeah, I'm going to move to Miami. I'm going to model. And, you know, I just, I didn't even know what that was. You know, I didn't even know you could get paid doing that. Have you ever been ugly? (laughs) Physically ugly. Um, I mean, I, I've been awkward, buck teeth, like super scrawny, underdeveloped kid for most of high school. Your teeth are perfect, by the oh, way. Thank, thank <laughs> you. But, uh, have you have you worked to make them perfect? Well, I had braces in high school. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so, and again, I've always been unaware of myself, and I didn't want braces because I was like, I don't want to walk around with braces, and then that's going to hurt. And who cares what I look like? I I like myself, so why should I care what other people think of my teeth? And my parents kidnapped me one day, took me to the orthodontist and kicking and screaming, they put braces on my face and fixed my teeth. And once I went through it and got them off, I was like, that was the best thing I ever did for myself. Cause now I look like a human being, but I didn't realize like how kind of awkward I was, I think. And, and a lot of it wasn't my fault. Again, I just, I, I developed way late. I just, and what control do I have of that? None. So, but, um, but I mean, you started working, when was your first modeling job at 18 um, or? Yeah, I think 19 was my first 18, 19. The switch happened for me between my junior and senior year, the summer before my senior year, which is like a really pivotal time in a, anybody's life. How old are you then? We um, have an, like another system. 16, 17. Yeah. Right. I mean, that age is like, it's so formative for us as people. And I just was tired of being like the awkward pseudo nerdy kid who like acted too dumb and silly to like be the cool kid and, and was too small to like really make a statement. And I don't know, I was just always in between and I was tired of being that guy. And I really wanted to like, I don't know, just get respect, you know? So I started working out really hard and I worked out harder than anybody I've ever, I mean, I still, to this day, I I work harder than anybody at the things I go for. And part, you know, a lot of that is on exercise and health and well-being. And 
but it started th- then it started between that junior and senior year that summer. I worked out every day and I came back my senior year, a completely different person. I'd like hit puberty. I was also working out and people like really, I, like I got a completely different reaction my senior year. Those class superlatives that they, that they give away. I, I won best physique for my class superlative. It was such a transformation so that's when it all sort of started that like, maybe, you know, people react different to me now, you know, very different. Like the girl that I'd liked my, like been in love with my entire life, you know, inscribed her name on my bedroom window. That's still there at the, my parents' house in, in Niceville. I knew her since I was in fifth grade, never said a word to this girl. She never spoke to me. All of a sudden we're dating. <laughs> like I'm like, okay, this is, this is different. People treat you differently when you like work out and start to grow hair under your arms and whatever. So that's, that's really when it shifted. But yeah, I was always really awkward, really awkward before that. So that's, that's when it all sort of changed. You obviously get a lot of appreciation and so forth about your looks, but does that do anything for you? No way, man. Uh, Look, Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. It works against what I want because what I want is to be respected for my creative mind, my yeah. intellectual mind, what I bring to the table as an artist. And I haven't yet had the opportunity to really show the world what I have to offer. I just finished principal photography producing my first feature film blue mountain state the movie co-wrote that as well but i've got scripts and ideas that i've already written you know i've got properties that i've optioned because i believe in telling these stories there are things that i want to bring to the world that i haven't yet had the opportunity because people don't want that yet i have to work to educate the world as to what what i have to offer because right now And for the last decade that I've been in the business, people only see me as one thing, which is like either the jock or the very, very superficial view on who I am. And when people find out that maybe I'm not stupid, it's almost like they don't know what to do with it. People are confused by somebody who may look a certain way and may be nice or maybe like driven or really business savvy, you know, and Like I, f- I think I'm those things and it confuses people. So people don't want to see that. They want to see the thing that makes sense to them, which is like a dumb jerk. And I'm not that. So when people look at me and think anything other than what I want them to be thinking, which is respecting me for who I am as an artist, as an intellectual or whatever, 
they, they don't see that and people don't generally want to want to see that. Like I said earlier, I mean, people are usually disappointed to find out that I'm like a family guy and I'm not actually acting like Thad Castle all day long. You know, I mean, couldn't you make that happen a little sooner if you stopped taking care so well of yourself? I mean, <laughs> yeah, you but you know what I'm saying? Right. I understand what you're saying. You could have a perhaps a little beard, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. not work out so much. Yeah, I could. Have but, some donuts. Uh, <laughs> I definitely can. I can definitely eat some donuts. But that's the thing is, why should I limit my potential? Because it helps other people understand it better. You know, we should all be raising the bar on who we are as people. We should all be our best. And just because I, I, I didn't ask for the body that I got. And well, and, you've sort of worked to achieve it. Well, no, but I could have been born in the middle of the Sahara Desert in Africa into a, a, a tribe there where I'm starving and I'm just hoping I live to 30. You know, I mean, who knows where we, why I was born in the US at the one of the most free and economically booming times in the history of man into a body that solicits business from a very superficial society. I mean, that has nothing to do with me. I didn't earn a lot of the opportunities that I had because of my creative offerings or intellect. I mean, I just didn't. And I'm totally aware of that. I don't take that for granted. There are people who are far more talented and far more deserving of much more than I've accomplished in my time in the in the business that will never have the opportunities that I have because they happen to get a different body or a different look or whatever. That's, that's uh, unfair to me. Yeah. <laughs> I recognize that. So I'm not going to like limit my potential because of it. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like feel guilty because of it. I'm going to make the most of what I've been given, but I'm also not going to take that for granted, but I'm not going to limit myself because it helps other people understand the cliche that most people fit into. <laughs> I'm just not that, you know, does it happen that you sort of feel that you don't get the part because you look too good? It's crazy. The comments that come out of some of these meetings in Hollywood. I mean, it's crazy. I've gotten all of it. He's too tall, too short, too big, too small, too ugly, too handsome, not funny, too funny. Literally, I've heard everything and it it can make you insane if you buy into it or if you put any stock in anybody's opinion. I mean, you just can't take this business personally, but but I think that's true to life, right? I mean, especially, you know, we we touched earlier on this social media society that we live in now where we live in this worldwide community now where everybody's got an opinion and it's really really hard to not let it affect you but you you know you have to know yourself and move from that place but anyway i've heard it all from these from these meetings and uh there's nothing that you can do about that i can control one thing and that's the preparation that i come to to you know bring to the table and my choices my personal creative choices on on any matter and my choices may not be the right ones, but they were right for me to make. And, and that usually means that somebody else will be making the right choice for that part. But it just so happened to be that way. I mean, I've heard actors talk about how they get really upset when they see other actors on screen with a part that they went out for because they're convinced that they could and would have done it better. And it's, it's, it's really hard to live in that place because there's a million different answers, you know, for, for these creative problems. And, but you must have felt that at some point as well. Certainly. I mean, I think there's, 
I'd be lying if I said there wasn't some level of ego there going like, I would have made that so much funnier. When I think of that, I just, I just, I won't say what it is, but there is a role I was that actually I, ask you. I screen tested for this role. I killed it. I just, I was perfect for this part. I still to this day believe that they made a mistake. I got a call from the writers after the screen test for this role, thanking me for making, like having such a good uh, screen test, coming prepared, making such great choices and, and making the character so much better than they ever thought it was gonna be. That was the call that I got afterwards. And one person that was the person with the most power decided they wanted a completely different direction that it just, they had something else in mind and everybody in the room disagreed and it couldn't veto that, that one person. And so it went to this other guy. I'm, I'm happy for him. I'm not resentful. I just know that it was funnier what I was doing. And I think that show would probably still be on if I had been, I just know it because I just know what choices I made. And I saw the end result of what this other guy did. And it was apples and oranges. I mean, wildly different kind of show because of those choices. And I personally feel like my choices would have been more entertaining. That's me. I obviously, I wasn't the guy for the part cause I didn't get it, but that I will never forget. And I, I still think about how I, man, I wish I would have, you know, gotten that. Cause I think I could have uh, really brought a lot of life to it. Can you just, uh, perhaps uh, whisper? <laughs> the, the, <laughs> no, which show? It no, was? because it's a small world, man. And that guy's going to hear it and he's going to be like that jerk. You okay. know, I don't know. It's, um, it, that's my little, that's my one thing, you know, where I'm like, man, I wish I had that, um, opportunity, but What would you need to be professionally happy? What I desire to be professionally happy, well, I'll be professionally happy when I have the ability to, from scratch, tell any story that I choose. I think I've got a really good eye for a commercially viable story. And I'm the kind of person where, you know, there's, there are a lot of people out in Hollywood who are so obsessed with being like creative purists, where it's like, I want to tell this story and I don't care if only one, one person in the entire world cares about watching this story. Like you're not really servicing anybody, but your own ego. If that's really how you're trying to create, there has to be some level of respect for the business of telling stories. And if a lot of people don't, don't care about the, wanting to see the story or you can't make a lot of people care about seeing something you're not really servicing humanity very well. I mean, there, there's always that story that just is too intellectual for like the mainstream audiences or too challenging or whatever. That's fine. We need those. We need those. But on the whole, like to have a whole society of people and creators in Hollywood going like, I just want to make the pure, like this story because it speaks to me and whatever. Like we can't have that. You got to have people who understand the business and, and are appealing to an audience that would would want to see something. And then there's the other side where you've got the studios who most of them are making the safest, most uninspiring choices that are purely box office driven where you're not telling any story. You're not, you're not bringing any idea to life and it's really vapid and that, that we have to fight as well, but there's a middle road. I think I understand that middle road really well. And I think I've started to prove that with blue mountain state and working really hard to get those rights and bring that to life because there's an audience there that wants to see it. I want to give them what they want. And I've got my own stories that I think 
could appeal to masses of people. And I want to tell those stories because they're fun, entertaining, themes are inspiring. And, and I, I care about being able to tell those stories. But I have to earn the right to tell those stories. And it still may take a few years before I do. But I, I know I'm good at producing. I know I'm good at understanding what the audiences out there are hoping to see. And I want to be the one that helps provide that. I want to be a storyteller. And that's, that's what I'll be happy when I have the ability to tell any story I choose. I think not being afraid to, to argue creatively with people in a respectful way, I think is really important. I'm somebody who believes in, and I, every day people tell me not to invest your own money in things. And I, I just disagree. The road I'm going to take in my life is going to be different. I, if I believe in something, I should be the one paying for it. Like, I, I don't care what anybody says. It's, that's the line I'm going to be taking. So you do have invested in Blue Mountain State, yeah. for instance. I, yeah. I've, yeah, I've not, my time, my money, my love. I mean, I've bled for this thing. Um, I care about it. And, and I know it's going, to be, it's going to be a great film. I, I know that. How many people go and see that, who knows. But I hope that it's wildly successful because I know it will afford me the opportunity and success to do what I want to do, which is to bring other stories to life. And it'll make that much easier for me. If it's financially a, a success, that would be great because then I, I have all the more power because I, I already know what my slate looks like and how much those films are going to cost. And if I ever reach a point where I can afford to make those on my own, I'll, I'll make them on my own. I believe if I don't believe in it enough to pay for it, I shouldn't be making the movie in the first place. Okay. So I think too many people... I think the system that's in place, it's one where like people are playing with other people's money too much and it's like monopoly money and you stop caring about the product that you're making because you're not invested enough. I think it should be a requirement that everybody producing a film has to be invested in some way financially because I think people would be making much more interesting choices. Wouldn't they become even more safe then? I don't think it would be, I don't think it would be, more safe. I think it would be more interesting. I think the ideas would be braver. I think you'd be trying to create things that other people hadn't done before, more n- new original ideas that were that were vibrant and aggressive. I mean, I think it would push the envelope. It would pu- it would raise the bar on what we create in Hollywood. I really I really believe that. You'd be finding the most interesting choice for every every question that pops up in a day and there are a million when you're producing you'd be making sure that it was always the most interesting thing. If you had to choose between uh, acting and producing? That's a great question. I don't know how to answer it. I, I love both. I would hate to ever have to pick, but honestly, if if it were me, I would say producing. That you would stick with? I would stick with yeah. producing, yeah. If if I couldn't act again, I'm fine. You know, I'm not interested in like the fame. In fact, I'm a very private person, so I... I like my privacy and the the bigger my resume gets the harder it is to find that. And I don't do it for that. I don't do I don't do it so that when I walk outside everybody wants a picture or like wants to know my business. I just I'm not interested in that. I like people. I like getting to know people. I like hearing from my fans as much as anybody, but that's not why I do this and so I don't really care about that. And the life of an actor is a tough one. It's really only fun when you're on set and the camera's rolling on you. (laughs) Other than that, it's pretty grueling work and it's a very unsecure business. It's tough and it's like long hours and a lot of sacrifice because you're away from your your home or your family, your friends a lot of the time and you give up a lot for those little moments in front of the camera when you get to breathe life into something and play 
and kind of that magic is there going like, I don't know what this is going to look like at the end of the day, but let's see what happens. It's really exciting. That moment is magical. I love that moment right in front of the camera selfishly, but that's the most exciting part. Other than that, it's, it's, you're at the very bottom of the creative totem pole. You're one of the last people brought into the project. They've got the thing written. They've got locations. They've got all the financing in place. You know, all the creative heads are locked. All the big decisions are made. And then they're like, okay, so now bring in the actors. Let's go shoot. You're like the last rung on the ladder, you know? And it's, you know, people think that it's like the most glamorous. You're nothing creatively. I mean, sometimes you luck out. Like with Wedding Ringer, we were lucky to be on a film with a director, Jeremy Gerlich, who is also a writer who respects the freedom of creators because he is one. So he would let us play and like, we'd, we'd get what's on the page and then he'd like, now just have fun with it, you know? And really magical things happen, but it's so rare. Usually you're just not, that is not invited. And that's not a lot of fun to be a part of. So anyway, if I had to pick, I would say producing because I love having the ability to have an idea and watch it grow from this little seed in in my head or in somebody else's head and just keep watering that plant until it's this big, beautiful thing that a lot of people can enjoy. So I just think there's more there. If you uh, would have to trade lives with someone else, <laughs> who would that be? That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I love my life. It's, you know, it's... I've, yeah, like, but anybody it, got my ups and downs, in, but... In this question, you you don't get to share it I don't get anymore. to keep my life? No, um, sorry. Man, there are a lot of people I really admire and respect, you know, because I, I just I think about like I have these these people popping into my head, like like Leonardo DiCaprio popped in my head. He's 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 made choices in his career that I, I respect so much. I want my my acting career to look like his so badly. He's just he's 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 made brilliant choices. But I think about his life and it's like. I'm sure he's having a blast and you know living the dream for himself but like it just his life isn't what I want like he's he, like you know he's a globe trotter and kind of a playboy and doesn't have a family and I don't know I've like I love what I have and you know I look at that and I'm like I don't want that I want the ability to like like some of the best characters in film to be able to play those you know and, and sort of take a take a stab at any anything I want you know but he doesn't have to compete really hard for a lot of those things that he wants. That is, that's interesting to me, but I don't know. There's not him. I think about like some of the best, I'm just not, I'm insulated because I, you know, I, I work on my own stuff really hard. So I don't really know a lot of people that are driving things in Hollywood, but there are people who again, can just make whatever they want, you know, whether they be like studio heads, like Adam Goodman, Paramount kind of green light anything he wants you know it's like that's interesting but i know him and i'm like i don't know he's a great guy and everything but i don't want his life <laughs> you know, i don't know how to answer no. that question no, but, uh, anyway you don't have to but thank you for trying though do you always like come back to making music yeah it doesn't have to be a public endeavor i write all the time i mean it's just in the fabric of who i am it's a just a part of my soul, I think, to be a vessel for some song that exists that needs to be channeled through me. I mean, I write, yeah, I write all the time. I wish I had time to write more. Uh, it would be great to be able to do it all, you know, and produce and act and raise kids and still have time to like write song after song every day. You know, there's just my 
biggest complaint with life is that there's just not enough damn time. It sucks because I there's so much I want to do, uh, and so much love that I have for like these creative endeavors that I just not enough time to do it all, and and not enough time to capture those ideas that are there. It's a shame. It really is a shame that um, it, like it's 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 a burden on me actually. Like I I am burdened by the fact that. I have ideas and I feel a great responsibility to get those out and give them life because I think there's a reason that, that we have the ideas that we have. And I think how many inventions do we not have that could, could help society because somebody had a really good idea, but they were like on the couch watching Seinfeld all night instead of like tinkering in the garage, making that thing that they had an idea for. I mean, like how many books that could change the world weren't written because somebody didn't want to take the time to type it out. It's a shame to me that like there are probably millions who knows where we could be as a people if everybody got all those ideas out and brought them to life, but we don't live in that kind of world, unfortunately. So I, I, I personally feel a great responsibility to try and get as many of those ideas out, but I just don't cause there's just not enough time. So I try and write when I can to answer your question, but there's just not much time. So, so, you know, I'll write a song every now and then, but it's, it's one of those where like, I have an idea that's just too rich to keep in. So I'll go get on the phone and I'll play it and record it and I'll sort of write it down and, and just getting it out feels better. So yeah, I do it and I do it just for me most of the time. But now and again, you do make like a really party anthem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then every yeah, and every now and then there's like a mojito yeah. that I make and follow through with for the fans. Mojitos. Yeah, I just felt like that. A lot of people don't quite understand what that is. <laughs> Because I wanted to produce it with a really high production value. I wanted it to look legitimate, you know, and it be coupled with this tongue in cheek song about mojitos. I mean, to me, the comedy is in like the content being so vain and ridiculous and the quality of it being so good, you know, and to me, there's something funny about that. And whether people get that or not, I don't, I don't know, you know, but But I thoroughly enjoyed bringing that to life. And just so many people associate me with mojitos because of Thad Castle now that I I had that idea. And it was one of those where I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this because I definitely know there's a lot of people that could enjoy and and, and would enjoy it um, because of that character. So there's that. Yeah, there's always that. But a lot of what I write is like more singer-songwriter, you know, like stuff that most people that like mojito probably wouldn't be into. So yeah. <laughs> All right. You have the Blue Mountain State uh, movie coming up. Uh, is right. it coming out in 2015? Yeah, it was, so it's slated right now to to for like a September release. I'm not the one that makes that decision at this point because it's taken a turn. I can't even announce who who owns it now, <laughs> but it's a studio. A studio has it, and the studio is talking about releasing it in September. But they haven't even announced that they've they've picked it up. So. I can't wait to make that announcement and I can't wait to get the official release date, but it's coming very soon. And I'm going to be seeing the first presentation cut. The The director is presenting movie to the, to myself and the other producers this Friday. So I'll, I'll be able to see my first rough cut and uh, I, I'm, it's all I think about. I can't wait to see it. Um, 
you know, we see the dailies, we see the the takes that they kept, you know, the, that the director marked every day. And I, I would watch those, you know, at night after we wrapped from the day before. And I was just overwhelmed by how good it is. I, I've just been a part of a lot of film and TV and a lot of funny stuff and not funny stuff. And I just know that it's going to be really, really, really entertaining. So again, whether it performs, I don't know, but this is going to be something that a lot of people can enjoy and I hope do, but we're talking about a September release right now. Okay. What, what more do you have planned ahead? Man, 2015 is kind of a busy year for me and it's kind of all, you know, all sort of set in some way. But for me, I'm, I'm in post on Blue Mountain State, The Rise of Thadland for the next several months, taking a picture all the way through delivery to the studio. It's a pretty grueling process and there's mountains of paperwork that you have to get through as well as the the fun stuff for me, which is editing, helping to edit, helping to make all the choices with music and, and color and sound. And I mean, there's a lot of decisions to be made and I'm producing it. So, you know, it's, it's fun, but there's just a lot and, and, and people don't realize how long it takes to get all that done. And, um, and it, I'll be doing that for the next several months and I'm, I'm excited to be, and then we've got Ninja Turtles two coming up. So I still don't know when we're going to go back to start shooting, but they've announced the 2016 release date for that the script is in you know it's exciting because it's it's coming back and uh, the first one did really well and a lot of people seem to enjoy it so so there's that but we'll, we'll most likely be shooting that over the summer uh, as we did last year and then uh there would be the release of bms which you know i'd, I'd have i'd be promoting pretty heavily and um and then i've got another film called laser team that i just shot that'll be coming out sometime late 2015 most likely And I'm um, really excited about people seeing that. It was a really fun movie to be a part of. So a lot happening and a lot coming up. But the fun part is getting to see other people enjoy the work. And um, and although there's a lot of work to be done this year, Blue Mountain State you know, coming out, Wedding Ringer coming out in January, Laser Team coming out soon. I mean, there's a lot that people are going to be able to enjoy soon. And I'm really excited about that. How much time do you spend on looking this good? <laughs> how, how much time do you spend in the gym? I've got some tricks. You learn things when you're as old and decrepit as I am that you just can't you can't spend five hours in the gym every day. It's just not realistic to have any quality of life or get anything done. So I just just can't. So you got to come up with other 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 things at work that take less time and energy. And so I do, but I don't spend a ton of time. I mean, I'm like at the most an hour, but usually somewhere between like 20 and 45 minutes a day and a day. And I try and do something every day active just because I like being active, you know, but if I'm working out less than five days a week, it's like, okay, borderline week, week, but I try and hit four to five days a week, but, um, but I do a lot of sprints. That's the secret. I do a lot of sprints. So if I run, I run every day. I try to I try to run like five days a week. I split my time between like a nice jog and some sprints. That's I think that's the, that's the trick. It doesn't doesn't take long and it gets you in the best shape. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a schedule for the sprints? Is it like one and a half minutes uh, slow and then thirty seconds or? Yeah, a simple way to a simple way that I've learned to look at it is the goal is a thousand meters and it's in any combination. That gets you to a thousand meters. It's not much. That's like say meters, like for for the Americans' yards. Like it's 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 like ten one hundred yard dashes. You know, two four hundreds and a two hundred. It's not much. It's it's really not. You do a warm up, a mile mile and a half. You do your sprints, 
as hard as you can and you cool down with a little, like a couple laps and it won't take you more than 20 minutes usually. And you'll be dead by the time you'll be dying by the time you get done to that thousand meter. If you do 10, 100 yard dashes, 100 meter dashes as hard as you can, it's going to be hard to finish. But that some, for some reason, that amount, that, that distance of sprints is, is a breaking point for most people, myself included. Very good tip. So that's it. Just go for a jog, get warmed up, get your thousand meters in, in any combination that suits you. You know, if you want to just try and bang it out in a, in a giant, you know, 1000 meter lap, you know, as fast as you possibly can, you're still going to be accomplishing the same thing, you know, as, as 10, 100, you know, meter dash. So break it up, but it, it, it keeps it interesting too, because you can do some really tough days and do some slower days. And, you know, so that's, that's a, that's a simplified way to look at it. I think. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Do you consider yourself a feminist? No. Why not? <laughs> I mean, I think the politically correct thing these days is to say yes and to say because um, women are great and women women's rights are great. They are. I'm not the one to fight that fight. I mean, I think there are a lot of causes that, like, you know, I'm, I get approached about supporting a lot of causes and I don't, not because I don't believe in them or I don't think that they're a worthy cause. I just, I'm not the one to fight that. I don't. I shouldn't be the face of women's rights, you know, like I'm just, Why not? I don't care. Cause I have my mission in life. I was born to do something and it's not to promote feminism. You know, um, I leave it to somebody else. And if people hate me for that, then they can hate me for that. But I was born to do something else. And, and until I feel like there's a calling on my heart that is so profound that I have to support a cause with my time and voice and opinion and, you know, I haven't found that yet, but if I do, I'm open to it, but I haven't. And I, I just don't think it's going to be feminism. <laughs> I just don't. Mm. I think feminism has hurt society in a lot of ways because I think like any great movement in, in society, the pendulum swings to the extremes first before it finds the middle. So if there was oppression with women for a long time, which there was naturally the push when it starts is going to push to an extreme and it's going to swing in a way that isn't always best for society for a point for for a point of time and it's a matter of time it's just a matter of time before it starts to swing back the other way because the universe has a way of finding this equilibrium and i think in a lot of ways the feminist movement has created a lot of opportunity for women but look at the society we have i mean Girls, women in general are much easier, I think is a very, very kind way to say it these days than ever before. And sometimes I wonder what you're actually saying when like you're fighting in a lot of ways for like the freedom to be as sexual as possible or as promiscuous as possible or what what are you fighting for like but that's not what feminism is for me that i would be proud to call myself a feminist but that has to do with opportunities i mean that women should make as much money as men do mm -hmm. that women aren't forced to be the ones who stay home mm -hmm. to raise the children but that you can actually choose if it fits uh, <clears throat> your your family better that you are the one working that's fine but i mean it should be possible to choose you know right but what's happening is this the symptom is that like i said that's all well and good but the symptom is in a weird way creating a society where the women 
look more like men. And I got to be honest, I don't respect most the dynamics of, of men in society where there's a double standard where like men, yeah, are paid more men can do whatever they want and aren't viewed as like anything negative. Yeah. There are problems there. I don't respect a lot of that, but I also don't think that the right move is to make, to make it so that everybody has the opportunity to look like that model. That may not be what's best. I think there's something really great about protecting more traditional values too. You know, certainly as a family guy, as a father, I think if you want to live in a world where the mothers go to work all day and are the breadwinners, then the father should stay home. I think there has to be some trade-off. There has to be a cost, I think, to, to doing business because in anything, there's some cost. And I just don't want to live in a world where it falls on the innocent. And in a family dynamic, the innocent party is the child who has no say in who parents them. And so the thing that I see happening is we live in a world where women fight for the right to be CEOs of companies, but they want to be mothers too. And that's irresponsible, in my opinion, if the father is not also staying home and giving up what he wants. Somebody has to give up something for the children. And I don't think enough of that is happening. It's it's then, you know, because naturally the men are the hunter gatherers. So the natural inclination is for the man to work and he doesn't want to give it, give that up. The woman wants to empower herself and work and it leaves like a nanny raising the, the child. So I just think it's not natural to find a balance on both ends and something has to give or the innocent party loses. And um, are you saying that mothers are more suited to raise children than men? I, I would say absolutely. And I say nature would lend itself to that. I mean, fathers can't nurse their child. We all know But that after that first period. Right. Well, so for like the first year, I mean, after that, certainly fathers are well suited to take care of their kids. Mothers are naturally the nurturers. It's in their the fabric of their spirits and their DNA to nurture and it's in you can see it in the body. Science tells us this. I mean, you, you know, look at the way that they they nurse. Their bodies are designed to feed the child and I think it goes a lot deeper than just that, you know. Um there's just something different about a man and his strength, his masculinity. I think there's something very beautiful about a woman and her ability to nurture and care and her softer side, that that feminine side. There's something beautiful and good about both, but it's just it just seems more natural that the nurturer should be the one as the primary caretaker. I know I'm angering a lot of people who disagree. That's fine, but we should also be allowed to to disagree with each other. I can only control myself and um you know my wife and I made the decision that we were going to work as hard as it took to be the caretakers, the primary caretakers of our kid. And she wanted to be a stay at home mom. And I love that because I see how that changes our kids. You know, they are developing in such amazing ways because she's such a good mother. And when I'm off working, making sure that I can provide for them, they're getting absolutely the best care. I think the way in a lot of ways, the way that nature intended. So that's, that's the world that I live in the sort of structure that we have in our family dynamic. And I see the fruits of that as being very, very positive. That's not to say that there's not a, another way to do it, a better way to do it. 
I'm all for living in a world where women have rights and they work as much as they want. I just, I think it's really important to protect the innocent. And when you're talking about family dynamics, I think we forget about the kids when we we're trying to get what we want. So that would be, that's the thing that I always hope to caution against when people are like women are like, Oh yeah, I just had, I just had my second child. I'm going to be back at work in three weeks. And it's like, all right, well, who's raising the kid? You know, your husband is also an executive. So, Oh, we've got a nanny. She's great. It's like, if the kid had the, the ability to ask for who they wanted to raise them, they would never ask for the nanny. They would always ask for mommy or daddy or both. So I think we should work to protect them. That's where I come from. If that's, you know, some politically incorrect, you know, I don't know, whatever. That's what rings true to me. So that's kind of where I come from, though, as a family guy. Do you believe in God? Yeah. Always have? Yeah. Yeah, always have. I was raised in a Catholic home. My mom was like always super staunch Catholic. I mean, it was, it was like very by the book. Like you're not missing anything. You're going to Sunday school, you're going to church and that was fine, but it's hard. because I always, I'm the kind of person too, where like so many scenarios could be the right one that it's hard sometimes to make a choice, you know, or it's, it, you know, I can see, I can see so many colors of truth in like a lot of different situations. It's hard. I can, I can look at my life and somebody looking in going like, Oh, well, you only believe in God because you were, you were raised to believe in God. You were brainwashed. You know, anybody would, would believe in that. If you were really given the freedom of choice, maybe you wouldn't. So I see that argument and I go like, well, so do I just believe in God because I was raised that way? And because of that, I've worked really, really hard to challenge myself in my beliefs and I, I read, you know, everything I can get my hands on to challenge my ideas to test everything against what's what, you know, what rings true. And yeah, I don't take it lightly. Uh, I, you know, on a very personal level, I work, I work really hard to understand my faith and spirituality. And I'm very interested in the afterlife and the point of existence. And, you know, I've, I've, I don't take it lightly. A lot of people that's like, Oh, it's too much to think about, or I don't really care. I do. And I've chosen that. I, I definitely do believe in God and definitely have, have faith in that. So when did you uh, sin the last time? <laughs> have you sinned today? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I feel I'm the kind of person I, you know, I pray every day. If you're taking literally, you know, the scripture that I believe in, you know, um, I'm a Christian and I read the Bible, I try and read it every day, but we're, we're also told to, to read it every day that that's the living word of God. And that's our bread, you know, and consume it. Like we're eating bread. We eat every day. We should be reading scripture every day and meditating on that every day. And that's the thing that will sustain our faith. And so I, I, I think that, you know, on days where I wake up and I'm like checking my emails and not doing that personally, I feel like I'm not living my best spiritual life. And that's, that's sinful to me. I mean, it's, if it's not anything that glorifies God, then I think um, that's that's when that question of sin arises. I think, but um, yes, I woke up today and I started. I I I had like 15 emails, and I'm like, I actually have this. I'm signed up for this email list where it sends you all the scripture for a day, so that you are reading the entire Bible in a year. And so, you know, if you're constantly reading that, you're constantly getting all the all the scripture and. 
So that email came in, but I, I swiped away and I like got back to the business emails. Like it's, you know, um, so that was a sin. I, I would say that was, uh, you know, oh. as long as I come back around to it today, I think, I think, I think we're okay. But yeah, I don't think that was great. Okay. I, I think it shows a lack of priority. I'll uh, let you go read that very, very soon. <laughs> Good. But uh, would you like to recommend anything, something, anything? I'm really into Sam Smith right now. I want to recommend people get on Spotify and listen to Sam Smith. And then if you love it, download his music. I just got Spotify, by the way. I just found out about Spotify. I was listening to Pandora for a while, but I think Spotify is the best. Okay. And uh, Thank you for plugging a Swedish product. Is it really? Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's the best. Yeah. I'm like way into it. So I've been listening to, I've been like remodeling uh, some rooms in my house over the holidays. And uh, I just listened to Sam Smith 24-7 while working on that. So I'm way into that. So I, I'm in love with his music right now. I would recommend that. Cool. Who do you think I should interview on Varit? Sam Smith. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank and you. Man. Sorry about the mishap in the beginning. No, it's all good. It's all good. Okay, man. Thank you. Thank you. That's Alan Richson, ladies and gentlemen. A truly fascinating guy. I did certainly not agree with him on the issues of gender equality and feminism, but of course he's entitled to his own opinion. I just don't share that at all, but people are different, and I understand that it's it might be some cultural difference as well. Yeah, I'll just leave it at that. And you can find him in social media. Of course, uh, he has a Twitter account with 160,000 followers. So I hope he'll tweet something about Varvet. Please do that, Alan. And the uh, rest of you guys, thank you so much for listening. Well, I would appreciate if you also wrote something about Varvet on Twitter or uh, on Facebook or wherever you feel like it. Maybe not on a public uh, wall or so. Well, if you do that, you do it. It's it's on you. I take no responsibility for that. Varvet is made by me, Christopher Triumph, and producer Christina Jörling-Biro and editor Lovisa Olsson. Talk to you in two weeks. By then, I will be back on American Soil, I think. Yes, I hope so. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. 
For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 